Hello, beloved On Being listeners and friends. Many of you are asking how you can help support the work we're doing at the On Being Project. If we're fortunate enough to make it onto your list for giving this year, you can absolutely visit onbeing.org slash give. Your generosity of every kind is gratefully received. Thank you for being with us on this adventure. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Rebecca Traister and Avi Klein. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever podcasts are found. So this is really fun, because how often do you get to introduce one of your own journalistic heroes, mentors, and friends? And it's very funny, Krista, because I cannot see you at all. So it's like I'm introducing a a, ghost. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I I can move like this so I can sort of see you. Um, This woman, you know, probably requires no introduction, but Krista Tippett is a Peabody award-winning broadcaster, National Humanities Medalist, New York Times bestselling author, She founded and leads the On Being Project, hosts the globally esteemed On Being public radio show and podcast, and curates the Civil Conversations Project. She grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, attended Brown University, and became a journalist and diplomat in Cold War Berlin, and later received a Master of Divinity from Yale University. Um, She's working on a new book. Her last book was Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living, which is a really beautiful book. Um, I thought it would be funny if I told my meeting you story, Krista, which I don't even know if you remember, but I, we were at the same conference and I'd never met her, and I have this thing where I never really want to meet any of my heroes because I'm afraid that if I meet them I will just babble and say nothing that they haven't heard before and just inconvenience them and I can always talk myself out of it. So I was at a conference, and Krista was there, and I was turning, turned to my friend, and I said, if I do meet Krista Tippett, unlike all these other times where I don't talk to the people who I like, really look up to, I'm going to tell her this, and I'm going to tell her that, and I'm going to tell her this other thing. And all of a sudden, I feel this like, light touch on my elbow, and Krista's standing there, and she's like, hi, Courtney, I'm Krista. And I was like, oh, God, okay, well... I've already told all the things, so at least now I can just sort of slink away. Um, But it was the beginning of a very beautiful friendship, um, which I am so deeply grateful for. I'm going to let her introduce the other two brilliant humans up here, um, both of which I also very much admire. But please take it away, Krista Tippett. Thank you, Courtney. Now I don't know where you went. Um, so I, I wrote out some remarks to begin with, because, and I wrote them out because I think we all agreed it's this, it feels, it's hard to talk about all of this. It feels a little perilous. And I know you've all been together all day, and so um, it may not feel that way to you anymore. Um, and I, you know, I want to say, it, it goes without saying, but I still think it's worth saying again and again, that Me Too is a moment, and it didn't just start a year ago, and Rebecca Traister is one of the people who has been reminding us of that this year. Um, And Tarana Burke, who first gave rise to these words uh, in 2006, um, spoke to the Times just this past week, 
um, of her, her concern that the movement that is now underway, really the movements that are now under around this, don't lose sight of the central mission, which was and still is to connect survivors of sexual assault to the resources they need in order to heal. And I read that and I thought that the H word, heal, has not had much of a place in the journalistically driven public reckonings of the past year. And that word can be employed too quickly in the face of trauma. Um, but surely the complex of reckonings, because that's what it is, that we are societally naming and wrapping our arms around with the impetus of Me Too is at best an opening to a long-term cultural reckoning to grow up humanity, to grow up our species, to grow up our society. I think that a solutions lens on Me Too, and I just love the framing of this day, would ask, can journalism, can journalists be among the culture interrogators and shapers who help create and shine a light on the spaces, the vocabulary, the imaginative muscle, the processes, and the pragmatic forms to support healing where it is possible now and in time. I believe that, the, that grappling with the Me Too movement through a solutions lens would show us ways to cover this and live this, not as a liberal issue, not as a white issue, not available only to women who are safe enough to speak up, not a matter in which women alone have a stake, in fact, but a human matter. As uh, a woman in this room said to my, said to my colleague um, this morning, um, not a women's issue, but a people's issue. I think the question, a question that a solutions lens on this would ask is what, are, what is the generative work we might begin to, to map out inside ourselves and in the culture, in our life together, alongside, not instead of, but alongside the mapping of devastation and the honoring of the stories and voices and depth uh, of, of trauma. And I'm really glad and honored, um, even though I'm a little nervous, to be invited to be part of this event and to be here with Rebecca Traster and Avi Klein. Um, I guess I want to also say that I feel like we are all just stepping onto this vast territory together. Um, and I'm as interested in surfacing our best questions as I am in answers, and I, I think that high-quality questions are a primary tool of great journalism, as they are a primary tool of cultural change and of scientific discovery, that the quality and searching of our questions will determine the quality and searching of our solutions. Um, so Rebecca Traster, uh, I'm just going to give brief introductions, and I, I think there's a longer one that you can read, but she's a writer for New York Magazine, a contributor to Elle, um, a wonderful journalist, the author of a powerful and extraordinarily timely new book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. And she's really been on the front lines of covering this and articulating the complex social dynamics that we condense into um, the hashtag MeToo. And Avi Klein is a psychotherapist who works mostly with men as his patients. And he wrote a really illuminating piece uh, in the New York Times, which I, I still very vividly recall reading, about how this, uh, again, what do I want to call it, uh, this phenomenon, this reckoning, um, was changing his work 
and his interactions and what men were bringing into therapy in the wake of this, uh, compelling them, as he wrote, to engage with topics uh, in a spirit of self-searching um, that they would er earlier have avoided. Um, we are all here as human beings, all of us, uh, up here and out there as human beings as well as professional people, and I, I think it's important, especially around this, to be transparent about that. So I wanted to start, and I'll start with you, Rebecca, to just say something about the background of your life and experience that your conscious um, has shaped your response to and your engagement with this moment. Um, well, there's the fact that I have, at some point in my um, mid to late 20s, I became a feminist journalist. And I've often wondered, um, I grew up in an era um, as white middle-class woman who was born in a family with generally left politics, but in a Reagan era, super anti-feminist backlash period, where the notion that whatever feminism I was um, imbibing um, at school and from my own family um, was just didn't necessarily have a contemporary political application. Like it wasn't, the, I could no more have conceived of the idea that I would someday be a feminist journalist than I could have flown when I was, when I was in high school or college or be, frankly, you know, several years beyond college, um, even when I was first a journalist. Um, but there was something always in my background and my life that drew me to questions around inequality, gendered inequality, racial inequality. Um, this is the stuff I was writing about when I was writing English papers, you know, about Jane Eyre, their eyes were watching God. When I, I remember watching the Anita Hill hearings, as many people my age, younger and certainly older, do, um, I actually watched them. Um, her testimony with my extremely conservative Republican grandparents in rural Maine who thought she was lying. And I remember sitting there in this little kitchen in the, on the farm where my mom grew up, watching the little black and white TV and thinking very quietly in my own head, I don't think she's lying. I don't think she's lying. Um, and I don't know like what knit together in my childhood and sort of my own individual personal politics and approach to literature and and electoral politics that produced in me a curiosity as a journalist, but it did. And so then for the past 15 years, it's been a process of both being a feminist journalist and also um, trying to learn the history that in many ways I was never taught mm -hmm. as a young person. I think you said you you had a caricatured view of the of the early feminists. Yeah, I think, I think many of us who came of age in this period of intense anti-feminist backlash, even if we understood the, um, and, and were sympathetic to the politics of, of feminism, um, absorbed the sort of broader cultural message, which is that the feminists of the 1970s had been humorless, too angry for their own good, too radical. Um, in fact, I think there was a notion, and this was probably what was the most absorbed by me, was that their approach, which was too radical, disruptive, and angry, um, actually had put people off feminism. Mm -hmm. And that strategically it was an extremely bad idea. So that even as I began to become a feminist journalist myself, and I think I'm not alone, probably with, you know, and, and not distinct from other people who, who may be in this room, part of the approach to um, 
rebuilding a mainstream feminist conversation. And I should be clear that a feminist journalism and feminist media existed on the margins even throughout that deep freeze of anti-feminist backlash in the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s. And I don't want to take away from the people who were doing that work in that period. But the mainstream feminist conversation within the media was sort of revivified starting 2004, 2005. And I was a part of that as a young journalist, very rudimentary, doing very rudimentary feminist journalism. And I think that there were real stylistic efforts made to be funny and lighthearted and ironic and cheeky and like and and to be stylistically to stylistically differentiate a new generation of engaged feminists from a generation that had preceded us mm -hmm. and i don't by the way I, I am now i can simultaneously be sort of critical of that approach that i took and also appreciate that i think um, it wasn't dumb I think it helped to um, I, I think it helped to bring a feminist conversation back. What what year were you born? So seventy five. Seventy five. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, and so so the a theme, if not the theme that's emerged through your grappling with this, um, has been women's anger and the unhealthy relationship women have had to anger and the importance of reclaiming that that healthy relationship, is that, would you say it that way? Yeah, I would say that, um, I, I'm trying to think about how health plays into it. Yeah. I think that, <laughs> no, no, that's a real question for me. And well, part I, of mean, I think the way I'm, I'm saying that is kind of clinical. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what it boils down to, but it's a lot more colorful than that, like the, the actual experience. Right. I think that I think one of the things I'm trying to say is that part of the experience of women's anger, especially in response to inequality and injustice, mm -hmm. that anger has often been cast um, in public realms mm -hmm. uh, as irrational, mm -hmm. um, unstable, hysterical, threatening, when in fact history would show us that it, that anger has often been politically consequent consequential and propellant at the beginning of social movements that have wound up changing the circumstances about which women may have been angry. Mm -hmm. um, and also something that's interesting to me that you just named, I mean, it's very, it's just, it's a reality, but that women transform their anger into something more palatable, that women cry mm -hmm. when they're furious, mm -hmm. and that doesn't translate in the public sphere. No, in fact, one of the reasons that it works well, and this is especially true for white women, um, who within a white patriarchy are more readily discernible as vulnerable and traditionally feminine, is that crying when you're very angry um, can lead a public to be more sympathetic to you because you're being read as vulnerable, not furious. And that vulnerability actually um, often works to the benefit of women, again, often especially to white women. There was actually a study that I found when I was writing my book that said when women are in court accusing partners of domestic violence, if they cry on a witness stand, um, the men they're accusing are liable to get longer sentences than if they express anger. If they're angry, then the men get shorter sentences, which is kind of... a. a it's a really uncomfortable thing to have out there, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess this is what I mean when I say what you're talking about is getting healthy relationship to anger. So this is uh, something you wrote. What is good for us is opening our mouths and letting it out, permitting ourselves to feel it and say it and think it and act on it and integrate it into our lives 
just as we integrate joy and sadness and worry and optimism. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be a healthy relationship. You're the psychotherapist. Sounds healthy to me. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You've been out on book tour. You've been out there talking about this all over the place. Um, what uh, questions do you find people are kind of are emerging now? What, what's surfacing that we still need to work with um, that you're holding that other people are holding? I think that, well, one of, the, one of the most both gratifying and saddening things that I'm finding is the absolute starvation for, the yearning for acknowledgement that women who are feeling this way um, aren't alone. And that's one of the things that I write about being healthful and good about the expression of anger as opposed to the bottling up of it and swallowing down of it, which is that while we think of anger as fundamentally divisive and confrontational, the expression of anger, especially for people who have been at power disadvantages, the expression of anger can actually be connective because it can connect you to other people who are angry about the same things or have faced similar challenges. And within a political context, that can also lead to coalition and then organization and the formation of exactly the kind of networks and movements that can lead to an address of whatever the political inequality or social inequality is that you're angry about. And so one of the things on tour that I have found that I don't know that I was emotionally prepared for was the degree to which the people who want to have this conversation, I mean, the, the intensity with which they are hungry to connect to each other within a room, to me, to the kind of history that I'm writing about, to feel like their, um, like their angers, their frustrations, their fears um, are, are not them alone, that they're not all the things that we get the message that we are if we're angry and scared and frustrated, which is they're not crazy, they're not the only one that's feeling this way, and that in fact there are people they might connect to um, that can better put in context what they're feeling in both a historical and a, and a political way. So um, there's been that, and, and I don't think I was emotionally or intellectually prepared for the intensity of that desire, but it's like I can feel it every time I speak to a group, that kind of like, oh my God, the 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 sort of electricity and and weight of connection and feeling like you're part of a bigger story, both nationally now or historically in the broader context. Um, and then the questions tend to be both about how, if if there is a movement that this anger is bringing many people into, how can we, a, a lot of the questions are about how can we make this movement better than it has been in earlier iterations? Yeah. About addressing the anger within these coalitions. So a lot of it is about the racial inequality within a women's movement, both historically and in contemporary terms. A lot of the questions are about that. Like, what do we do? Um, and, and honestly, so much of my response winds up, and I often feel like a broken record when I'm out getting a bunch of questions because I think people expect a book like this to be prescriptive about like, you should go out and rage more and yell, and it's very much not. I mean, it's not a prescriptive book to begin with, but to the degree that it does recommend a course of action, it's not about individual expression. For one thing, I think women are filled with 14 billion different messages about what they're supposed to do or not do with their anger or how they're supposed to voice it or not voice it, and me telling people go out and rage isn't gonna do anybody any good. Um, but also, a lot of the book is about the penalties are incurred by women right, when cost. they do rage, right? Yeah. That you, we can't, yeah. we can't, I can't pretend that if you're a woman who's angry for completely justifiable reasons within your job and you yell at somebody about it, that that's not going to redound negatively to you. Like you could lose your job or not get a promotion or get a reputation for being difficult. That if you're a woman of color, furious for every good reason for being pulled over, if you yell at that 
officer that you're not going to risk arrest getting shot personal injury so it, a lot to the degree that i have any prescriptive recommendation it's not about expression of anger it's about listening to the anger of the people around you, um, including anger that may be directed in part at you. It's about finding connection through listening, not necessarily through a different mode of expression. And I'm struck, so I, I wind up saying that a lot when people ask, like, what do we do? What do we do? How do we make it better? How do we do it differently? And very often, my answer comes down to listen to the people around you. Be curious about what they're angry about. And then when you, when you ask, when you seek out their answers, listen to them. Take them on. Consider them. Give them political weight. Give them intellectual weight. Imagine that the anger around you is, is a valid anger, as your anger is. Um, and that, I mean, I think we're not hold that very often. Hmm. Well, let's, I think that really um, leads, is a, is a nice segue, Avi, into the angle you've had on all of this. And it feels to me also like this question I asked Rebecca about what in your life and experience you are aware you bring to mm -hmm. engaging with this moment, mm -hmm. that that has come together for you in your work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um... I mean, you said uh, you wrote, the Me Too era has changed my work. Yeah, um, I think in a very particular way because, um, to make an unfair generalization, but uh, for one of the differences in working with men than with women is women have spent a lot more time looking at themselves internally and, and talking about what's happening with their friends and they have the vocabulary for it. And men sometimes don't. And, and so this moment has done them a favor in that way in forcing them, in bringing up uncomfortable feelings that they were usually more, uh, or better equipped to ignore and avoid. Um, so that, I think that's, that's been the most palpable change is it just sort of forced its and way And I mean, you, you said, you, you mentioned many reactions you've had to this. You said you've, among them, you've had the curious experience of tracking my own occasional defensiveness yeah. at female rage yeah. and wrestling with uncomfortable self-reflection. Yeah, I was, uh, I think about that a lot and was thinking about it when I was listening to Rebecca speak that I don't think I'm alone in when, when someone is angry and, and maybe you personalize it, maybe it's not even directed at you, but it feels personal. There is this instinctive uh, you know, impulse to pull away and I, I don't want to hear it. Let me reject that. Mm -hmm. um, and it is just sort of the question, what if you didn't do that? What if you just stayed and, and opened yourself up to it? What would happen? And you, I mean, you describe men coming in and, it, I mean, you have, you have said that you, at least in this piece, and I'd yeah. be curious if you think this has changed, but you've been discouraged by what you feel is a muted public reflection among men, yeah. and yet you've really been privy to private, private self-searching, yeah. and men coming into therapy and saying, you know, you know, raking over. And I have also had this conversation with male friends, like really just going back over their lives and asking, like, not, and you know, some of it is, is, is there something that's going to come back to bite me? Right? I mean, there's that, but there's also just a lot of like, you know, what did I, did I hurt people without meaning to hurt people? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I mean, you've said, you know, men have said to you, am I a monster? You know, am I, am I like Harvey Weinstein? Yeah. And I do, I, 
anecdotally, it seems like it is starting to change. There have been some, there was um, a man who wrote an op-ed recently in the Washington Post about witnessing a rape um, 40 years ago. And there's another thing in the New York Times recently where men yeah. are being more vocal. And I'm so heartened by that um, and admire the courage. Um, but yeah, I think uh, there is something about these, these private spaces, I think it sort of needs to happen that way at first because you're opening yourself up to um, potentially a lot of anger and, and a lot of regret. And you know, um, when Tarana Burke was interviewed this week, um, she said, she actually mentioned that um, you know, just the way we do things now, it's all in public, yeah. right? It's tweeted and... And that's how it feels like you have impact. And, but there's a lot of this work that probably has to happen in private to be fruitful and to be healing, honestly. Yeah. That, how do we, I feel like that's something we need to kind of wrestle with. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And that, that feels right to I me. Mean, I mean for men and women, or yeah. for, for victims and perpetrators. It's messy, right? It's really messy to find your way where do you want to land on something? How do you really feel about it? And it's complicated. And if you just say the first thing that's on your mind, that may not be what you, where you ultimately, hmm. uh, what you ultimately think about it or how you feel about it. That's been my experience with the men I work with. Did you with. want to say something? Well, one of the things that I have learned, um, you know, writing my book about women's anger, it's women's anger in all kinds of contexts. Women who are angry about workplace inequality, you know, help launch a labor movement. Women angry about racial inequality and um, injustice, the civil rights movement, women in the gay rights movement. Something that's very particular about gendered inequality in this country is sort of a structural reality, which is because women are a subjugated majority, there is this reality about the sort of nuts and bolts of how this works, which is that every woman has men in her life, and every man has and women in their life. And some of us are raising life. sons. Yes. And, but what that means, one of the reasons that it's very rare for women to coalesce in a women's movement in which that anger is about gendered inequality and that happens sort of only maybe every 60 years or so, is because one of the incredibly difficult structure, structural realities of that is that if you're gonna look straight at and sort of acknowledge the inequalities on the table, what that means is disturbing some of the most intimate relationships mm -hmm in our lives. So it's partners and lovers and spouses for hetero people, it is, it's, fathers and brothers and sons and friends and neighbors and co-workers and and that means sort of permitting your because a lot of this stuff is about permitting yourself to feel the anger to to note where there is inequality or where you have been treated badly often by someone you love or where you have treated someone badly often someone you love um, and it's it's 
profoundly emotionally difficult mm -hmm. to do that kind of assessment of unequal power within our most daily, intimate, emotionally tight relationships. It is a real structural obstacle to getting mass women's movements. And when you do, it's one of the reasons that you have rupture in some of these. You, you see divorces go up. You right. see relationships fall apart. You see, you know, the, the stuff of furious Thanksgiving dinners and, um, and, you know, broken hearts. So it's hard for it to happen. I mean, it's just like, actually, I mean, we talk a lot in our project about creating a new quality of conversation, but actually some, some of the hardest places to do that are around the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? Like in your family can be the hardest place. But then out in public is also not, you know, uh, and I, I also, and I, I mean, this is just, let's just go ahead. I mean, you know, one thing that's, that I've been thinking about so much in these last weeks um, also is that the spaces, you know, I really don't want this to be about the Kavanaugh hearings because, you know, that was a moment, uh, potentially a very historically significant moment, but it was a moment. And I, and it, it, it awakened, it, 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 it inflamed um, all of this that was already with us. And I felt like it, as a, as, a, as a canvas for that, as a place for people to project this real trauma, it wasn't worthy of that. It was so flawed as a lens on all of that. So, so, if, our, so if our private places is hard and our public place, I mean, there's, I, and again, this may just be a question we put into the room, like how do we, how do we honor the private nature of this and find and create those spaces that can be worthy of how intimate this is and how important. Yeah, I, I guess I, I think about my own experience in my own work and I'm thinking about men that I've worked with who have taken uh, something out of our work together and then brought it into progressively more public spaces into their relationships, but then how much work went into being prepared for that, hmm. um, working through their relationships with themselves first. Right, um, and that it starts so small before you can get to a place where you can, because even to to open up about these things is so potentially, it's destructive. It's opening yourself up to shame and humiliation yeah. and anger, and it takes a lot to to say that's what I need to do right now. Our, our relationship, the integrity of our relationship, needs that. I want I want to ask you about something you wrote. I want to ask you to explain this. Yeah. Um, Shame is the emotional weapon that allows patriarchal behaviors to flourish. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess what I was trying to say there is that, um, and I would imagine there are other people who could say this more eloquently than, than I can, but um, there's a sense that I have with men uh, working through some of, the, some of the behaviors that they've engaged in and some of the attitudes that they've had where the shame that they're really feeling, sadly, it's not about how they're treating women. It's about how, how they appear in the eyes of other men. Um, so much of it is motivated by that, about saving face in front of your, um, your, your peers, your, your friends, your, your father. Um, there's someone, you know, one of the quotes of someone I worked with who uh, in that piece talks about having a notch in his belt um, when he thinks about his, like, serial uh, cheating on his partners. And, and it's, like, that's really about um, 
what his friends think of him. It's not about what, uh, impressing women. Um, and in that way, I think that there's this shame of not being a man that's it's about where you stand in, in patriarchy. Mm-hmm. That, I, that just made me think so in a way that I hadn't so palpably, and not to return to the Kavanaugh hearings, but about the places where Kavanaugh in his public rage, which he was able to wield as a weapon on his behalf, where mm-hmm. he broke down and wept. In part, it was like his dad and the calendars Right, that I hadn't thought of it that way, but what you just said made me realize that some of it, some of the gr- the apparent grief he felt, or sh- or perhaps shame, if there was shame, was about how his public, not necessarily about whether or not he may have done harm to Christine right. Blasey Ford or Deborah Ramirez, or, um, but rather that that this was about his standing. And again, of course, we've seen that amplified by those around him, this notion that he was attacked, that um, you know, that, that the person who'd been injured here was in fact the powerful accused man. But listening to you talk, I just remembered his voice breaking specifically about his dad mm. and the calendars, and he always kept a calendar. And it was like, oh God, right, that's part of what that's about. Oof. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you also said um, that that men who you're working with have this deep fear that, in fact, they are boys, yeah. that they're not men, that some, and that somehow that's something always that they feel that they have to be proving. Yeah, that's something that um, men volunteer really early on, actually, when they sit down with me. I don't feel like I'm a man. I feel like I'm still a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's this sense that they don't, it's so, I think it would be so surprising for other people to hear that, that, that these, I work mostly with affluent white men and they feel like they don't have agency mm-hmm. in their personal lives. They, don't, they feel like there's a sense in which whatever they're engaged in, that they're not really in charge of that in some way. And it, it's confusing mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, something, the, the New York Times Sunday Review had this piece on the front page and one year on, which was not that long ago, from the Harvey Weinstein story. And you know, the end of the last line of the article was progress requires a correct accounting of what women have faced. And I read that and I think, yes, and progress requires so much more than an accounting. And I think that that is a conversation to be had in a room full of journalists. Um, this is why I'm grateful for the Solutions Journalism Network, because I do think that journalism, and I started out as a print reporter, um, uh, you know, has best trained people to do that kind of accounting, especially of damage, right, and of corruption. Um, and I think your question about how do we, how does this generation of women, we're, not, we're in a place women have been in, in at other times in history, and how do we, and, that, and in some ways that's, that feels like accompaniment, it feels like we're not alone, and yet also I think there's this desire to do it better, right? To, to, mm-hmm. to, to push it forward just that much more. Um, and I guess, you know, one thing that's on my mind is, um, again, that, it, you know, with regard to journalism, um, and, you know, we've been talking about men's shame, um, this question of creating worthy spaces and forms for, for women's trauma and anger to be 
out in public, and I don't even like the word safe, I feel like the word safe has been kind of ruined, but trustworthy spaces for that. And I think that's also a bit perilous in journalism because of the impulse to shine a light on the damage. I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. I think that what you're saying ties into some of the conflicting feelings that I've had about the role that journalists played in the hashtag MeToo mm-hmm. movement. Um, you know, the the one, the version of MeToo, um, you know, uh, 11 years after Tarana Burke's MeToo movement um, that began with the reporting on Harvey Weinstein yeah. Um, yeah. on October 5th. And there's, an, this, is, this is a real case of conflicting opinions because, or conflicting emotions within my own head. Because on the one hand, the, the story of Harvey, right, this individual man, um, somehow captured an imagination and captured the attention in a way that then became tactically useful moving forward, sort of created the space even in the fast-moving media world of a Trump administration, created the space and to, in which so many other stories could pour forth. And I think that, and, and that for me is the part that, it's the women's stories and men's stories um, that were the part that I was the most invested in, like a full picture of, of lived experience in the world, including experiences that had remained silent and untold for so long, but that had perhaps had profound impact on, on people's lives, careers, trajectories, and yet the full story of their lives, careers, trajectories could never be told because this was an unspeakable thing. And that happened because there was reporting on individual men. Simultaneously, I remain so frustrated by the fact that the reporting was on these individual men because I think that supported this belief that, you know, if you, that it was individual monsters mm-hmm. and not the whole mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. That, is, that is rigged and that there became this kind of, and, and that in itself permitted a whole bunch of misperceptions about what the value of what we were learning was because A, training the attention on these individual men, you know, supported this idea, oh, if we just get rid of these few bad apples, we'll solve the problem, which of course we know is not true. The problem is an unequal distribution of power and the behavior of those who wield an excess of it. But also, um, it re-diverted all the attention to the men so that without suggesting that we shouldn't be thinking, obviously we should be thinking about how men's participation in this, because the stories became these individual powerful men, A, it blotted out the value of other stories where there wasn't a movie star or a politician, right? right? So that the Ford right. factory employer, employees who told their stories to the New York Times, the, the um, airline workers, flight attendants, hotel workers yeah. being reported on by the Huffington Post, the McDonald's workers who two weeks ago went out on strike in response to pervasive sexual harassment at their institution, they're just not getting the same attention because there's not a Harvey Weinstein or an Eric Schneiderman mm-hmm. who is a character or a, a person who in part because of their outsized power is familiar to us and thus uh-huh. who we can sympathize with as a, as a human story that draws our eye. Yeah. And so it creates all of these. And, and then, of course, it means that then the story becomes the, the attack on the powerful right, male figure and what's happened to that person. And in fact, the often nameless or unknown to us, you know, few women, dozens of women, hundreds of women, and some men who have made allegations against this powerful figure, their stories and the harm, even though it's their stories that 
propelled the revelation about this powerful man, they're not given the same imaginative weight in the, in the media as what happens right, to the man who's accused. Right, and not only accused. that, we get that story in thousands and thousands and thousands of words with all the salacious details, and it has that awful way that true crime is riveting, you know? Yeah. In a, in a terrible way, it becomes, you know, perversely entertaining. Right, but this is, I'm really torn on this because I also understand that to the degree that we were able to have this conversation I mean, all these things that are simultaneously bad about the way this unfolded, the fact mm -hmm. that it was only something that a mass number of people could focus on when it was white, wealthy movie stars, right? right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, we have to look instead at Instead of the fabric of our culture. Instead of the fabric of our culture. But that is also the very thing that enabled it to become a force that freed so many tongues. Right? And so these things, it's, it's, it's the way I also feel about repercussions, frankly. I am not a big repercussion person. I am not a big, like, I don't, I don't want to be anybody's police. I don't want to be anybody's judge. I f feel very ambivalent and unsure about, you know, even stating ideas about what repercussions should entail for any particular offense. At the same time, I have to recognize that if there weren't repercussions, the behavior would never change. I mean, there, all these things can be true simultaneously and yes. pushed directly back and forth against each yeah. other as we're trying to wrestle with them and figure out how to make this work better. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking, Avi? Well, uh, right now I was just appreciating uh, Rebecca's ability to articulate things that oppose each other like that. Mm. Um, <laughs> so that, that's what I was really thinking right now. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sort of hesitant to weigh in in some ways because the work I do is so is so the opposite, is so on a smaller scale and private. So uh, where I was going in my mind was about what happens like when I work with a couple, for example, and a partner, let's say the male partner, has really hurt um, hurt his 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 wife, right, in some in an emotional way. And the resistance to really taking in that hurt, it's an interesting thing to watch people, we do it all the time, we all do it, right? I th and I think that's what this is sort of speaking when to. When we've hurt someone? When we've hurt someone, or we, we just don't really want to take it in all of the way. And in part, it's because it makes us feel so bad about ourselves, right? And you need to, there's a steadying that people need in those moments. I think about how I, I would try to help someone open themselves up. This, this isn't about you right now. This is about her, right? Um, what it takes to feel solid enough to hear that. Um, mm -hmm. That's where I go. So, you know, my, my personal... Um, so I'm, I was born in 1960. So in the pre previous generation for you, like right in the wake of that monumental women's movement, um, and... My gen, or my think, of course, we're generalizing like crazy here. Um, my so I was the first generation of women who got the message that you can do anything. Being a woman isn't a problem. A woman like me, with the particular education I had and all of that, um, you can do it. All, you can do it all. You can have it all. And I proceeded in that spirit, and it turns out not to be true. You know, so we, it was my generation, they lied to us. Um, 
And one of the things we ran into, and I think women of my generation, and I don't know how much this has changed, but we were there was no template for how you how you do all these things, how you work and be in a relationship and parent and just be healthy. And everybody was cobbling it together, and there were you know a million ways to do it, and everybody felt like everybody else was getting it better than they were. And but one of the things I was really clear on, I think women in my generation were clear of, is one of the things those founders did is they didn't bring men along with them. And so we were, we were enlightened. We had changed. We were different from our mothers. But our, our, the men in our lives weren't different from our fathers. Um, and so, but I do find when we start having this conversation, I know this has come up today, uh, you know, it's very complicated because on the one hand, we want to say it's trauma of, and it's not only women, but sexual assault, and it is mostly women, um, uh, that must be at the forefront, forefront of our attention and our care. And sometimes when you want to raise it, like, what do we do with men? Like, how do we move forward with men? That, that can feel almost like an affront. And I do think what, you know, the, the move Rebecca was making a minute ago is we, we have to be doing a bunch of different things at once. Culturally, we're not so comfortable with that, right? We're all purists these days. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about, you know, sometimes it's just a natural um, instinct for so many of us to to take ourselves out of, um, out of conflict. And I'm thinking about some of the men that I've worked with where they would, um, they just use language in tricky ways, right? Unintentionally, but they obscure what they're talking about. Right. So be like, you know, that thing that she's upset at me about, like, oh, when you cheated on her, right? Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, you, but I can't say that, right? right. If I said that, um, they'd leave. Um, that's just how I'm feeling in the moment. But so what do you do? How do you let someone just sit in their own denial, right? In their, in this, uh, they're reinforcing it themselves. And so I, um, another therapist who I admire a lot um, taught me a way of doing that, which is, um, right, the risk, the reason I can't say that is because um, then I would be sacrificing our relationship to tell this person the truth, right? Um, he would just leave. So I, so I put that on the table. I say, I really care about our relationship. So tell me, um, can I push back on something right now? Or is, this, is that too much for you? And I let them decide, can they hear it or not? And then once they hear it, then I tell them, I think when I hear you say something like that, I think you're obscuring what really happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, can, we, can we look at that together? And then afterwards I say, I'm, I'm appreciating that we have a relationship that's based in honesty. Um, just to start to shift what, what's happening here. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm bizarrely, um, f for a, you know, big old man-hating angry woman, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm very yeah, man manophilic, told, told, right? You're told the world that you have better, a better sex life when you're <laughs> yeah. angry. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the book. That's, no, it's healthy. <laughs> if you let your anger out, you're a healthier person. There's, um, <laughs> um, so one of the things you asked about being on tour, and one of the things that's been brought to my attention over the past three weeks is the degree to which I am so man-friendly, right? And I have been a very unapologetic and hypercritical uh, 
voice for a long time when it comes to, to the patriarchal abuses of power. But I, I have been thinking, and, and people have brought up to me recently, I go and I talk to rooms full of people, and I find myself happy to see every man in that room. And then on a couple of occasions afterwards, I've been talking to people after, and some of the other people there have been like, oh, the guys asked all the questions. And I'm like, oh... I was so happy they were participating <laughs> um, that my, I actually, I, so I, I say that to say that perhaps I am, I, I err on the side, ironically, of generosity toward men and their interest in participating more than, than some of my um, contemporaries um, and peers would. But that said, um, I, do believe that that big wave did change generations of men. Not completely, because I think that this is a process that takes centuries, right? Yeah. This is, I think that the hopes of that generation, that like, you know, things were gonna be fixed, I think that we're all guilty of thinking that in a moment of eruptive fury and propellant change, we're gonna fix all the problems, and our history in this country tells us that these, even the individual movements that we think of in retrospect as being kind of neat, like remember the civil rights movement? Yeah. It was decades, right? Like the, you know, so many of the social movements have, have unwound over true, literally centuries and are still in the midst of being fought out, right? And I think that we tell ourselves a pernicious little lie when we tell ourselves that we're gonna fix the, we're gonna come up with the solution as opposed to looking through a solutions lens which, which aims to get better. But I think that one of the difficult things about this moment that was also difficult during that second wave period is we're asking the world, we're, we're suggesting that we're changing the rules of a game that most people are well into, halfway through, right? This is a really tricky ask. And the way, the way we can think of it in the second wave is that we had a generation of people who had entered marriages, um, and especially sort of white middle-class marriages built around post-war investments by our government in creating a sort of idyllic white middle-class. And those marriages had been entered into willingly and enthusiastically by men and women who expected marriage to entail a certain breakdown of responsibility, right? And both the men and women had gone into them eagerly, right? And then along came a social movement that exploded expectations. Well, the women were taking Valium, though. I mean, many, uh, many of them were. <laughs> deep, deep into those relationships, many of the women were taking Valium. Um, um, in part because, of course, they were premised and, and on, on a fundamental inequality and unjust uh, organization of power. And so then came a social and political movement that exploded those expectations that opened new doors, not just economically and professionally and educationally, but sexually. And suddenly, in the midst of some of those marriages, the rules and possibilities changed. And you found people, including men, who were like, wait, you, we did this together, and now you're telling me that I'm an abuser of a kind of power, or that I'm a patriarch, or that my behavior has been unacceptable, but in fact, it was perfectly, right. This, we're doing a version of that now, where we're changing the rules. We're trying to change the rules, with the understanding that those rules have been set up, and our norms have been set up, in ways that are fundamentally unjust to vast swaths of people. And so we want to change them. But changing them mid-game means that that some people who've been playing by them are gonna be caught out at having violated rules they were born thinking they could play by. Well, and not only we're changing the rules, 
by which the people who are right now at the peak of their power and leading our institutions were masters, mm-hmm. okay? And yeah. like, I think our sons are not all, I mean, I'm, you know, again, I don't want to generalize, but, but the perfectors of those rules are at the height of their powers right now. And that's what we're focused on, and it is egregious, but you're right, it's, it's also it's like, we're just, what we're talking about is the pace of human change, which is, which, is, which is not only slower than we want it to be, but it's always uneven. Right. There are people who get there first, right. and there are people who take a long time, even for things that later just look so obvious. I guess, um, I mean, I, oh, we need to close. This is so great. Okay. Um, I think one thing I want to get to, which really flows out of this, is um, the question of, you know, I don't really want to just say a space for apology and redemption. I want to say a space for change, right? Because what we want out of this is for people to start to change and for that to show and for that to be articulated. And I think... I was listening back to a conversation I had with Desmond Tutu years ago, and he was talking about what happened in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how they did create this, they created a trustworthy, you know, not just, again, not just an honored space for stories to be told. And then he talked about how when in a setting like that, where the stories were held, the people were held, um, spontaneously, the people, because the, the people who had harmed them, I mean, sometimes grievously, right, murdered their families, were, had to listen. But, but creating the right setting for that, spontaneously, the, they asked for forgiveness. And then something new, you know, it wasn't, like he says, a moment of reconciliation is something that then takes generations, but there can be this moment of forgiveness that is the beginning of a a lot of new possibility. So, I mean, one thing I think about our culture, like our, the only ways where the notion of redemption or atonement, and I find myself reaching for religious language, but I think that's because, like, our religions are, are the places in the human enterprise that have tended practices in language like this. Um... It's just as celebrity-focused as, as the pointing out of who the villains are, right? It's Louis C.K. and John Hockenberry. And, 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 the, and it's so messy and horrible and inadequate, what, you know, the high-level things we're seeing. And yet, I think we can get distracted and say, because they're doing it so badly, we can't even talk about this. So I think, how do we talk about redemption or... I don't even want to say forgiveness, right? Just change, growth, and how because it's not actually safe now. This is why I thought those men who wrote in the Times this week, I think that's really brave. Because we don't really reward people in general, but in, in this, for saying, boy, I was really wrong. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about what it typically takes someone, like to create a space where you can be open and vulnerable in that way, and the amount, typically, right, people need to feel pretty safe, mm-hmm. and you have to have a lot of trust. And it's, it's important to remember how hard that is to just create that. Um, even one-on-one with people, the amount of safety and trust before we ever, I mean, the people that I wrote about, by the way, you know, it took them, oftentimes it was months, they'd say they were coming in for one thing, and we'd do that for a little while, and then they would share what was really on their minds because they didn't know me and they didn't know what it would be like. 
Um, and that's just with one other person who is supposed to be non-judgmental, right? So what it takes to open yourself up and not know what you're gonna get back, um, it does take bravery, it does take courage. It's important to remember that. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think, I, I think, in my mind, I think more about, maybe it's because of who I work with, but I think more about the apology than the forgiveness, right? That if you really... Um, the asking for forgiveness. Okay, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and that, uh, but that it's almost like, I guess, without any incentive to be forgiven. Yeah. Because that's about, that's what you need, right? The, yeah. the person who's wronged. But what is the person who you've wronged, what, what do they need to hear? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and they need, I think one, they need to know that you, that you hold them in your heart, that you hold their experience in your heart. The, what you did to them, you, you're allowing yourself to imagine it, what it was like for them, I think is so important. And then once you've let yourself imagine that, what, what did that do to you? Yeah. So I, I feel, Rebecca, that that's like the journalism we need to develop almost a new muscle well, it would also have to better control for its own self-made audiences because in mm -hmm. part, you know, I think about, um, again, my interest is in the stories of the women or the mostly women who are explaining and telling the stories of their lives fully, often for the first time. But that can't bridge that divide that Avi's describing because if, it's, if those stories aren't actually being heard, by the people who've inflicted some of that pain, then it does give comfort to others, right? It, it provides some of that connection and, and network building amongst people who've shared those experiences and, and derive something of value from hearing those stories. But it doesn't, it doesn't accomplish that thing that I agree with Avi is the key to moving forward, whatever form that takes. And I, again, like I'm very wary about, you know, making any pronouncements about who needs to do what in order to gain this forgiveness. But I do think that I completely agree that the crucial part of the process is it being in part about the stories of those who've been hurt and them being able to communicate one way or another to the people who hurt them, this is what it was like. And this is, and so much of what we hear from the men reflects a kind of lack of curiosity yeah. about what the experience of having been harmed in some way actually entailed because it might not be the things that they're imaginatively guessing at and performing. Um, and trying to figure out how to do that within journalism is very difficult because you can't force people to read or listen to things they don't want to read or listen to. Mm -hmm. But again, I have been heartened. And what Avi is saying about his practice heartens me that even if it's not the big select like the Louis CKs of the world who are doing the listening I do believe that there are a lot of men out there who are reading these stories who are having their eyes and ears open there are men in my life they're my friends I I hear from them in many ways that bizarrely resemble the way that you're hearing from them even though I wouldn't think that they'd come to me mm -hmm. for that but mm -hmm. but doing an accounting you know what have I done this is what I've done and maybe they're looking to me for forgiveness, but they're do I, I know that they're doing some work on this. Yeah. Um, so, and I think it's, you know, I think it is a responsibility of journalism as a whole to make sure that we're still telling full stories of the harmed 
in addition to those who have done harm and you know who whatever damage they've sustained as a repercussive result mm -hmm. is the thing that becomes the sort of pull of the of the coverage. I think it's important that we continue to tell the stories of those who've had less power because those are stories that need to be aired to those who've historically had more power. Yeah. Um, just in the last few minutes, are there other questions or observations that you'd want to just surface, either one of you? Hmm. I was just thinking about, as I was listening to you about like why don't why don't we want to listen? You know, like why why do we push against it? And particularly men. And I, I think for one, um, so if you really take in the reality of the hurt that um, the pain that women are going through, one that just that feels really bad, and and it's really hard to open yourself up to that. And then there's this way in which I think men are so often used to trying to fix things. And there's a real helplessness that they feel in hearing this without having to do anything else um, but listen. And there isn't a lot of, it, it just needs to be said so many times, all you need to do is listen. You just have to listen. Well, listen and act and, and perhaps change your behavior. The analogous thing for me that I think about sort of constantly right now is writing about racism within a feminist movement and how hard it is for white women to sort of do the same process of listening mm. to why women of color within their progressive movement are angry at them, us, me, white feminist, um, for having benefited from the kinds, you know, and, and participated in, uh, you know, a system of inequality. And I think, and so I think about that from, the, from a white feminist perspective and how difficult it is for, for progressive white women to take on board the knowledge that they have participated in and benefited from, you know, a kind of inequality that they imagine themselves dead set against. Um, we wanna be the heroes of our, of our lives, right? Yeah. And I think that being told <laughs> that, I mean, and I think this may be true specifically within progressive political circles where we imagine ourselves fighting injustice and being good people, having that vision of ourselves disturbed by the actual fury of those who don't view us as the heroes, but in fact, um, to whom we have done harm in one way or another, I think it's, it's incredibly, it's, it's a hard thing to acknowledge. Yeah. You know, the imperfection of your, of your own, what you view as your purpose. And this is, this is not for two minutes, but <laughs> women, some of us have, those rules of the game we all played by. Right? And I'm not talking about where rape was at hand. Right. But we're all relearning the rules. And some of us very successfully maneuvered our way through that to our advantage. And I, like, this, this, this is a discussion women are going to have a, among themselves. And that's one of the things that I think was initially read as a generational split over Me Too, and I don't think the generational ex explanation fully covers it. Right. But I do think that there is a reality for many women who were groundbreakers in many regards and were angry and did furious work of participating in social and political disruption, and but also did that disrupting within a system within yeah. which they also existed and in many cases flourished. And then to have 
another wave of disruptive fury come and interrogate that system in which they themselves have flourished, yes. it feels like an attack on them. And again, the failure to acknowledge the way that they themselves had, had been disruptors and had, and had been fighting on the side of good. And yeah. that's one of the hardest dynamics. I know so many women who for years, as I've been writing about feminism, um, women who said to me, why aren't young women angry? Why aren't young women angry? And then young women got angry. And often it was those part of who they were angry about were some of the older you. women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I feel that, that we did put a lot out in the room that's really valuable. And we were never going to solve it today. But I think there's a lot of good fodder and raw material here for even the H word, for healing, for solutions. I actually thought it would be good to let Tarana Burke have the last word in the room. Um, because, you know, and this is another thing we have to hold together with all of these things. We have to do at once, not just walking and chewing gun at the same time, but a lot more than that. That, you know, her point is um, a lot of things are getting conflated. And she said, you know, um, Me Too at its heart, while well, she said, there is in Me Too a particular problem to be solved among all the even broader ones nine months ago. Millions of people, this was, she just said this at the Aspen Ideas Festival a few months ago. Millions of people around the world who are survivors of sexual violence, very specifically sexual violence, raise their hands to say, me too, and their hands are still raised. Thank you for having us. <laughs>